My name is Skolp Nietling, and this is the Mechanical Inc. Podcast. A podcast about open source, the open web, sustainability, and those who want to make the web and the world a better place. Hey, Isaac and Richard, and welcome to the Mechanical Inc. Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Hello. Yeah, it's great. It took us a while to get to find a date that worked for everybody, but here we are at the end of the first month of a new year. So I think this is a good time to have a conversation about open source. And um, without any further ado, I think let's let's start with a round of intros. I think Isaac, you wanted to go first. Sure. And again, thanks so much, Shock, for having for having me. So I'm Isaac Levin. Uh, I am a .NET developer advocate. My primary focus is community. So having conversations about open source, specifically around .NET, and just continuing to drive awareness for how much AWS loves the .NET open source system. And I'm Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. I help run the Sustain podcast mainly. Sustain's a loose community of people dedicated towards understanding what does it mean to keep open source going and to keep projects going in a way that's authentic and awesome for everyone involved. I also help run the Sustain Open Source Design podcast which is about what does it mean to be a designer in open source, um, which is pretty fun. Uh, I do both of those as part of my role at both Sustain and also the Digital Infrastructure Fund, which is a philanthropic fund for digital infrastructure research, and also at the Open Source Collective, which is, I guess, my main employer, if I were to have such a thing, where I focus on helping out open source projects on Open Collective by getting them fiscal hosting. Um, those are the main things I do. So, yeah, excited to be here. It's cool to be with other podcasters. Um, although we're all really polite with when we want to jump in. So if there's a lot of silence, audience, I'm sorry. I was just thinking about the fact that all three of us have a podcast. So we probably need to in the future have a pod- my podcast that has us two on it. And Richard, you, we, can, we both can be guests on your podcast just to complete like that inception circle, right? Triangles all the way down. That sounds like a wonderful idea to me. Yeah, fascinating. Three podcasters. And uh, thanks for the intros. Um, yeah, it's so amazing to speak to to people who are so deeply involved in open source. Um, Richard, when I started reading a bit more about you, I was like blown away a little bit by all the things you do in open source. It's really, really amazing. I've known about Sustain OSS for a long time, actually. When it just started, like the very first meeting, I think was in San Francisco. Um, I'm not sure. But um, I was offered a ticket to actually fly out there, um, but circumstances and I couldn't make it. But yeah, I, I've always been so appreciative of, of, of that. Um, and I've been, from that day, I've been really, really following everything that SustainOSS does, and I'm so glad that it, it exists. Um, talking about podcasts, Isaac, you run the Coffee and Open Source podcast. And it's delightful, and I have it on my podcatcher, and I listen to it all the time. <laughs> I have a couple of questions well, around it. Well, glad to hear that. Thank you. And so I have a two questions around it. Um, the first one is because I am always interested about the use of Twitch for a bunch of things that relates to coding and open source and this kind of thing. Um, and if I'm not mistaken you live streamed the podcast to Twitch. So that's the first topic. How did you decide to do that? 
I think one bit, I, I think that it's an interesting medium for interview, right? Because I think, you know, and, and not to knock any other podcast, especially when there's two other podcast hosts on this, on this particular instance, um, podcast is a very, in my opinion, like 2d medium, right? You hear it. And I think that the idea to kind of add that additional flavor of, of seeing someone's face it, it, or seeing, you know, their reactions to questions or, or things. And I think, you know, to give a little bit of context, so my show is very much about the, the squishiness of tech and open source, right? So uh, it, it doesn't follow like a particular topic usually, and it doesn't really drill deep down into technical things. It's about you know, how we can do better in technology. And I think the way that I always channel that is by showing, like, talking about the folks are passionate about. And there's no better way to show how passionate someone is by seeing their facial expressions. They start to move their hands. It's, it's, and that's kind of my approach for it. I will say that it does become a little bit more challenging as it pertains to logistically because not everybody is in a position where they can record their face. And I give people the options that they don't want to record their face. They can, uh, they'd arm say they don't have to. Um, but I think in general, it's just an interesting angle that I like to add to the process. Also, it holds me to a higher standard of, of quality because I don't really have as much opportunity to do a lot of editing because if I edit out parts of the conversation, the video becomes different than the audio that gets disseminated across different podcast platforms, which is an audio experience for people. So in a high level, that's kind of my reason for using Twitch. I, I can honestly say, like, I don't know if it really adds any additional value to, I guess, me or users. I like it, but if I look at my my viewer, viewer numbers, like in YouTube, says my viewer numbers on the audio podcast is substantially higher on the audio side, right? Um so, I mean, it's interesting. It's definitely an interesting experiment that I enjoyed doing with so far. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I'm, I don't know, I'm on Twitch, but nobody knows really. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, using it for different, for different purpose, um, more education type style, but I dual stream to YouTube and Twitch at the same time. Um, and I, I have to say that I mean, it's early days for me, so it's hard to really tell, but it seems like there's more engagement on Twitch than on YouTube, which is interesting. Um, I think you've touched on this to some degree, but maybe you can dig a little deeper. Um, seeing that you've done the Coffee and Overthrows podcast for, what, it's coming up to two years now or even more. Um, if you think back over, like, the recent history or even the entire history, um, are there any, like, themes or learnings that you've gained from speaking to all these people that that you'd like to share sure and and this is kind of funny because at the whole my whole goal of that show is to i'm not looking to monetize it i'm not looking to do anything and i tell people that um i do this solely from a selfish standpoint because i have an opinion that um, I have a set, a, a fixed number of bias in my life that I, um, that I am not, I don't really enjoy about myself. And the only way that I can grow as an individual in tech, as well as personally, is to have conversation with people that I would usually never have an opportunity to talk to. Like, you know, I've interviewed folks on my show that come from completely different backgrounds, have completely different ideas about tech than I do. And it's really, really helpful for me to 
go down this path of having these conversations with folks. So I think one thing that's always interesting when I have conversations with folks on my show is um, just how different everyone's experience or our uh, opinion of tech is, you know, and I'll be the first one to say like my experience with tech is, is pretty, uh, is pretty safe. Like I'm a, a white male. Right. So it becomes very, very interesting for, for me to have conversation with people that don't look like me because their opinion of tech is substantially different. So uh, that's the, the, the general trend that, I, that I've seen a lot is that a lot of the, the assumptions that I make about tech that are just even across the board for everybody, they're not accurate. So that's probably the first thing and I can probably give you more, I guess, tactical like examples, but I think in general, like uh, the assumption I've made or that the observation that I've made rather is that tech isn't the same for everybody. Especially open source. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I mean, I have another podcast other than this one uh, called the Mycelium Network Podcast. And that one is a combination of conversations with early stage developers and then um, like mentors, teachers, uh, career coaches, that kind of thing. And so um, from the perspective of especially the early stage folks that I want to give like a platform where they can speak about their hopes, dreams and all that. Um, I have been a little bit deliberate in choosing people from different walks of life. Um, people who've come to tech from different areas, like people who've, you know, started in Mexico and then immigrated to the United States. And so they can talk about that whole problem that they have. Some people that are still in like South America, but they want to move to, and they try to get jobs and they find it easier in Europe than they do in the United States. And I'm like, that's so interesting. I wonder if it's laws that does that or what exactly. And it's very, very interesting to hear the conversations. And, and sometimes it's also um, interesting to learn that some of these things you hear about, but you can't quite believe like how women is treated in tech sometimes, or people that are uh, non-normative or whatever you want to call it. Um, and you hear from them tell the stories that is like, holy crap, that's actually true. This really happens to people. I'm speaking to somebody who has personal experience of this. That opens your eyes and, and that makes you even feel even stronger about the fact that, you know, what can I do to make this a little bit better? And, you know, hopefully through having conversations with these people, it, it makes it more obvious that this is not just stories. This is real people experiencing this and more people then maybe start taking, doing whatever they can to, to improve the situation. Um, Richard, so as you've mentioned, you are involved in many, many initiatives and um, projects and things. Um, can you give us like a broad overview, like a little more meat than uh, the introduction? So around sustain and then there's the maintainer IO and then open collective and the others. Sure. Um, I'm not very good at focusing, which is one of the reasons I really like podcasts because I don't really have to focus. I can just talk to other people about their work and not have to do it all. Um, so that's been shown out in my life and I have a lot of different experiences. Um, before I dive in, I just want to mention that when we talk about tech, it's not the same for everyone. My experience of having what 200 podcasts now that I've hosted is that everyone comes to tech from a different place um, and that tech is in no way different than the rest of the world. Like the world isn't the same for everyone. 
And so it's just noting the diversity of backgrounds that we happen to have from our little slice into life, uh, something that really continually um, surprises me, and that the problems that we have in, say, open source are exactly the same as the promises, the problems that other people have in, say, healthcare or labor markets or environmental sustainability, all sorts of stuff. Um, so it's really cool to make those connections. I really like the name Mycelial Network. Um, and my life has kind of also been driven that way of like, oh, everything is sort of related. I started out as a computational linguist. Um, so I started out being a academic and then I realized I couldn't make a lot of money. And so I became a front end developer, um, ended up working with IPFS and protocol labs for a while before starting maintainer.io as a way of doing community um, building, community support at like a contractor level. Um, I realized that the work I was doing for protocol labs, I could do for other people at the same time. So why not just make a consultancy? Um, and that worked out really well, but I also ended up realizing that there were systemic issues with open source as a whole. So I got really involved with Sustain from the get-go. Uh, I was at the first conference in San Francisco, the next one in London, the next one in Belgium, right before the pandemic. Just super fun. Um, I'm seeing people going to FOSDEM right now, um, and I wish I could join them there. I, I probably should have gone, but I didn't have a talk. I'm like, oh, I'll just get sick. But uh, we're having a Sustain uh, conversation the week after in London. So I'm really excited to go to that. Um, that'll be cool. And Sustain, I sort of do on at the same time as doing Open Source Collective. My contract with Open Source Collective lets me do both. And Open Source Collective, we're hoping, helping again fund 4,000 plus projects. It's just another way of getting money into open source. It's one of the cooler ways of doing it because it's not based on individuals, it's based on communities, um, which I think is more open sourcey in a way. Like, don't just fund single maintainers working on stuff, but try to fund people who are interested in turning their project into something that other people can work with, um, which I really like the collaborative aspect of that because that's what drew me to open source in the first place. I was a young idealist who's like, all data should be free. Let's make all the data free forever. Aaron Swartz for life. Um, and so it's it's kind of been fun to watch how that has shifted into more strategic policy objectives for me of like, okay, what does it actually mean to make data free? Well, it means making sure that communities are alive and making sure that people are able to come from wherever they are um, and engage and stay engaged and be remunerated for their labor. So that's kind of my MO. Um, it, it, I don't want to talk too much about me. Uh, there's a lot of more other stuff I do. <laughs> You know, I teach Latin, I make languages for video games and stuff, but like the main thing I do is really sustain and open source collective. And then a small part of that is running uh, a philanthropic fund towards digital research, um, digital infrastructure, which is just another way of looking at what does it mean that our society is underpinned by people who are giving away um, talent or product in the name of like high ideals and then society's building on top of them without paying back. It's like, how do we shore up our roads, our bridges, et cetera, that other people have built with their time? So it's all kind of the same. You know, what can we do to make the commons stronger? Um, how can we fight fascism with code, et cetera, et cetera? So that's me. If I could just make a general comment, there, the, there's no better flex than I teach Latin. Like, there's no better flex. <laughs> like, I mean, it doesn't like, pay well. It's just fun. I mean, you know? I, understand, I understand that, but. I mean, as, as somebody who took four years of Spanish and can't carry a conversation in Spanish, the like the opportunity I imagine to practice Latin is very, very limited. So they'd be able to teach it uh, is quite impressive. I still can't carry a conversation in Latin, though. Don't don't worry. We're, we're together on that page. 
Well, it's because you don't know anybody else to have a conversation with. Nope, they're all dead. That's a whole bunch of stuff, and I do agree. Yeah. I teach Latin, just by the way. <laughs> well, we're at this awkward position now between number three and four, so to speak. Well, it's not, it's not that awkward. So I just learned a lot about Isaac, which I didn't know about, and you've learned a tiny bit about me. Um, sorry about that. Um, Shock, I don't know much about you. I'm not even sure I pronounced your name correctly. Can you, can you tell me uh, what it is you do, how you got to this place, what the mycelial network is? Yeah, for sure. So my, it's not wrong the way you're pronouncing it. Let's start with that. Um, it's traditionally, originally, whatever, a German name. And if you ask a German person to pronounce it just based on the letters, they will say Schalk. Um, but I uh, live in South Africa. And um, well, from birth, I spoke Afrikaans, which is kind of like a dialect of Dutch, I guess. Um, and so the way we pronounce it is the CH becomes a K, so it's Skulk. Thank you. That's really cool. That's cool to know. So Skulk, how did you end up doing becoming a podcaster in open source? Yeah. Uh, long, long story, so I'll make it really short. Um, I've been a open source enthusiast for years. And strangely enough, the language that I... I don't even know if I loathe it, but maybe I've just grown to loathe it because everybody else does um, that introduced me to open source and that's why I'll always be grateful to it was Java because when I learned Java back in the day it was quite a big thing in the open source world um, and so I was introduced to open source through Java but then I found my feet in front-end development um, and specifically then like the whole movement towards using open standards and like the blue beanie movement from back in the day. Uh, and then also accessibility has been always super, super important to me. Um, and I don't know, like I spoke to somebody the other day called Matthew on my other podcast, the Mycelium Network podcast. Um, and he said this, his friend said this thing is you just have to find your weirdos. And I think I found my weirdos in open source. Um, and so, I don't know, I've just felt at home. And then um, I worked in some corporate companies, did not fit there at all, um, like went out on my own and took a chance and applied to a contracting position at Mozilla in 2011. Um, got the job, quit before I got the job. Um, and I've been contracting with them now for almost 12 years. And over the last three <laughs> cool. years or so, um, and I joined Mozilla because open source, but also because of the mission. And I think a lot of the things that you've spoken about, um, Richard, talks to that, like uh, open free web, Aaron Swartz. Yeah, I just talked about him earlier today again. Uh, we were talking about some university stuff and I was like, oh my goodness, this is exactly how he got into the trouble he did, which was so absolute nonsense. But anyway, let me not start there. Um, and I've always felt that even though I took some chances, I was able to do some really cool stuff because I had opportunities and I wanted to make sure I can somehow find a way to lift other people up, help other people as well. Um, and I think the open source concept played into that as well. And so, I don't know, two years ago, maybe I started playing with the idea of, of creating a community and I was playing around with it, playing around with it. And about a year and a half ago, I officially did it. I 
started this Discord server called the Mycelium Network. And for the longest time, it was crickets. It was me and they were sharing stuff, maybe two or three other people that were like friends that joined. And then the Code Newbie conference happened. And a person called Raphael, who I'm eternally grateful to, kind of pumped the Mycelium Network there. He was like, this is so cool. And then we got this, I got this influx of people joining the Mycelium Network. And from there, it really started kind of finding its feet and finding its purpose. And um, we started like a GitHub org. We had some projects that we're doing there. And then I thought like, what else can I do? And I thought, well, talk to these people, give them, give them somewhere to talk about what they want to do, what they've done, where they come from. Because a lot of these people are early stage. Well, that's the majority of them are early stage developers. So they're looking for work, but they lack experience. These are people that are legal professionals that's going to code. I uh, want to become coders, but they lack experience. Well, one of the things you can at least now say is I've been on a podcast and you can hear my story. So I started speaking. That's how the Mycelium Network podcast started. And then I guess a year and a half ago, I decided that I've registered this company name as a means to keep contracting with Mozilla. Maybe I should just try and do something with it. It's called Mechanical Inc. And I was like, what do I believe in? What do I want to do? And I'm like, I believe in open source. I believe in the innate power that it has, if used for good. Um, I believe in open culture and I believe in community. Okay, cool. And that's what I'm building Mechanical Inc. around. It's around those, those topics. And then I thought, well, I want to speak to other people that do this kind of thing. How am I going to do that? I'll start another podcast. <laughs> and so that's how the Mechanical Inc. podcast started. And um, yeah, and it's early days for especially the Mechanical Inc. one. I think that I've recorded four, five, six episodes, maybe. My CDM network, I've done about 22 or 23. So that one's a little bit more, got more shows under my belt. Mm-hmm. Can't compare to the two of you. I'm like, I'm like learning from the masters over here. Um, but that's it. Started out originally as a classical guitarist. Couldn't make money. Somehow fell in tech. <laughs> so that's essentially my story. Thank Thanks you so sharing. much for think, sharing. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Isaac. I was going to say, I mean, uh, you sound like a modern Renaissance man. I don't know the. I don't know if the idiom tr- translates to uh, South African culture, but the idea that uh, like you kind of do a little bit of everything. Like you mentioned also that you, you you speak Latin, you play classical guitar. You probably could have been dropped in the 1400s and done just fine, I'd imagine. Uh, me, not so much. I, I very much am accustomed to my, having my cell phone attached to my limb at all point in times, right? Isaac, you have a guitar directly behind you in the in the frame of the video, so I don't know what you're talking about. I tell people I tell people that these guitars are not instruments; they're art because I'm not very good and I don't play very much anymore. But they're nice conversation starters, and they do look pretty, right? And so he has humility having, like, too, some, everyone. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Nobody's heard me play guitar for a reason. Let's just say that. So to get back to to one of you, uh, Isaac. Um, so. You mentioned .NET in the beginning, and um, truth be told, I've had a, well, let's start with Microsoft. Until a couple of years ago, if you asked me, what do you think about Microsoft? I probably wouldn't have had a lot of good words for the company, but oh boy, have they turned around. Um, 
I think of most of the big tech companies, they're probably one of the ones I trust the most, which is just like a very uh, 180. And um, unfortunately, as part of that, that, I don't know, idea, belief, not belief, idea I had about Microsoft, like .NET fell into that. It was like, oh, .NET is something that's used only um, in uh, like uh, corporate companies and not used in open source. And you have to have all this software that's super expensive. It's very exclusionary. But I know that not to be true. Now, I'd love for you to expand a little bit about the .NET ecosystem and then specifically as it relates to AWS, which if folks don't know is Amazon Web Services. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And I think it ties a lot into like what my current role is, right? I, so for the folks who haven't, um, that, that may, might not be as, as aware of you know, the history of .NET, you're right. It was, you know, it's 20 plus years of development. And for a long amount of time, it was tied directly to like the Windows operating system. So as to the effect that you can only build .NET applications that run on Linux, I'm sorry, sorry .NET applications that run on Windows. And... Um, you know, in the last six, seven years, that mindset has changed. A lot of that's been driven by the community, right? Like there's work, there was work outside of Microsoft to kind of build cross-platform implementations of .NET, like the model runtime, for instance. And now we live in this world and it's 2023 and, you know, we have a .NET that's open source. All the planning for it is done in the open on GitHub. Um, you can take nightly builds of, of the .NET runtime, the .NET framework in general. Um, most of the project program managers as well as key engineers are available for office hours and things like that. And .NET literally runs anywhere, right? You can run it on all the major operating systems. You can run it on a plethora of devices, um, Raspberry Pis. I, I like my one of my jokes when I do t conference talks is who here has a Samsung TV? And people raise their hand. Well, your Samsung TV runs .NET, right? because the Tizen operating system is actually a platform that people can write .NET apps for. Um, and how that correlates to like my work at AWS is, you know, it, it is, it, I imagine a lot of folks that listen to your show would know, like, you know, AWS is the leading cloud provider, right? And a lot of that is, you know, workloads that are non-Windows. So the ability to run .NET applications on AWS workloads is very interesting. Um, but we still run into this problem where people kind of think that AWS isn't a valid option for a lot of reasons. And I think part of my kind of area of focus is to make people aware or help people realize that, you know, there are tons of great hosting options in AWS for .NET applications. So that's kind of, you know, the, the, the main reason, right? And I think a lot of that is, you know, shoulders of giant stuff, right? A lot of work's been done by community champions in the .NET ecosystem, employees at Microsoft who really, really want open source um, to be one of the core tenants of the framework. And that's allowed, you know, folks like myself to have a very interesting career and other folks in the developer community have an interesting careers as well and, and be able to continually kind of, you know, pound the gavel, I guess you could say for like, you know, .NET is a great choice to build applications, right? It's not just like you were saying, enterprise-y, closed source, whatever, right? You know, there's all sorts of fun things that folks can do in .NET. Yeah, that's great to hear. Richard, I don't know if, didn't know, don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. No, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with .NET in general um, or AWS. I do want to push back on Microsoft being a good player in open source. I don't think they are a good player in open source because they're not a good player on the corporate scale because they 
Well, they invest in ice. They help put kids in cages. Um, uh, screw that. I'm, I'm not okay with yeah. any company that does that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for it's sure. bad. And in terms of like, in terms of Microsoft being a good player in open source, this is a very long game. Um, let me know what happens when VS Code is the only IDE that's available. So I, my, my jury's still out on that one. But uh, I, 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 I know what you mean, and I've seen that a lot from other people too. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just saying that Microsoft isn't, isn't necessarily all hugs and cuddles. It's still an arm of, of major American capitalism, which as a whole is not the best thing in the world, speaking yeah, as an no American. For sure. Yeah, no, for sure. No, that's true. And yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That's important for people to know. No, I know they have their faults. I, they've improved, but they still have a long way to go. And yeah, um, I think a lot of people might not always think about it, but yeah, what does happen if VS Code's the only thing out there? VS Code eats the internet because <laughs> every little um, code editor that's spun up in the in the cloud runs VS Code essentially, which is great but scary at the same time. Um, what is the open source or the fork of it? Is VS Codium something like that? Um, I heard that there is a fork yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't tried it out yet. Um, yep. Maybe I should play. I think it is that. called VS Codium. I haven't I haven't tried it yet. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, probably should. Um, yeah, same. Yeah, sorry to sorry to put a damper right after your conversation, Isaac. Um, I, I no, just... I mean it, it's fine. I'm, I'm being very very quiet because um, you know because of a lot of reasons. I don't disagree with the comment, but I don't think there's anything additional to add to it. Um, I That's mean, fair. I, yeah. Uh, I think in general, and this is this is a very dangerous thing for me to say as somebody who works in big tech, right? Like big tech is is not without its faults. Right. I think yep. if, if you look at any major big tech company, like you, it does, you don't have to go very, very far to to see where there's kind of some areas of improvement. Right. Um, yeah. My primary thing is that for my world as a as somebody who has been a dot in the their entire career, my experience has gotten substantially better because of efforts made by a lot of individuals across the ecosystem to make .NET more accessible cool. for everybody. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of my thought. I mean, and, you know, regardless of, like, overarching big business, whatever, like, you know, .NET is something that I'm proud of to be a part of. And I think that at the end of the day, if I can do something very, very small from my position at AWS to kind of help facilitate the growth of .NET, I can. Like, one thing that we do is we sponsor .NET open source projects. So in fiscal year 2023, we're sponsoring one project a month for $6,000 that's accumulated over a, a, a year calendar. So starting this month in January, we're identifying a project which is selected upon a, a committee of folks that are outside of AWS and inside of AWS. And we're giving them $6,000 split up in 12 $500 a month payments. So and that's we've done, we did something similar last year and we're doing it this year. And the goal is literally just to make the experience of the open source maintainer a bit better because there's all this take, 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 take with open source. And if AWS representing our customers can do a little bit better in this regard, we're going to do that. So that's, I mean, that's, that's a, a, a really good thing that big business can do. Right. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like there's, there's so much more that can be done in this space. And that's, you know, that's my little piece of being able to contribute to, hopefully make this every big company has something like this, some FOSS program across their organization that gives back to open source. That's kind of my goal. Yeah. 
And that leads very nicely into uh, the next topic <laughs> that I had planned. And this is for both of you, and I'll probably chime in as well. But um, so it's around what, what do you think are the biggest challenges in open source today? And um, I had that as a question initially. And then I was like, there's this new news that kind of leaked out or was reported on in the last week. Um, so we all are aware of the massive layouts, layoffs that's happened in tech. But at Google, some of these layoffs have specifically affected their OSPO and where people like Krista Boner has been let go. Um, so, and as they say in this article that I linked on the register says that it's definitely not as if Google does not need open source. Google lives on open source. So I'm curious from the two perspectives, like the one essentially, um, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges in open source? And then what kind of signals does this send to, to, the, to the open source um, world if somebody like Google does something like this? Okay, um, I was about to say, I'm happy to go first if you like. Uh, this was not fun news. This really sucks. I mean, not that Chris Bonnet, Cat Allman. Cat Allman's been amazing over the years. So many people from Google um, are tenuous. And the people who are there are scrambling to try to help out their friends, especially friends who don't have visas now. Um, it's a big issue. What signals does this send? Um, I think it sends that OSPOs and open source and investing in open source is a fair weather ship. Uh, when when money is available, it's very easy to say give back and to sort of throw money around and say, okay, here you go, open source developers, thank you, it's a great image. It works a lot easier to put that into the marketing department, the marketing budget, and say this is just part of our image. But when you have to tighten down the straps and make sure that you know the investors and shareholders get their return back, because this isn't an issue of of income. Income hasn't substantially changed for these companies. It's an issue of how do we make sure we have a good investment in return then open source is often the first way to go. And this comes back to open source's model, which is frankly, let's give away our core product for free. That's how open source works according to the OSI. You can't charge for it and you can't limit who uses it. Um, so the biggest issues for me in open source is going to be a proliferation of licenses which are going to um, take away from the OSI's model and be more around, well, you can't use this if you're corporate unless you pay because otherwise you're going to have issues with payment for people who develop stuff. Um, I don't think that's a problem for open source in the big tent. It's a problem for open source in the small tent. And it's another problem because there aren't enough lawyers to figure all these licenses out. It's, it just takes a lot of FUD in the ecosystem, which is going to make people not want to do stuff. And we're seeing that even more with things like the EU and American directives towards how you actually release open source data. Like the EU is trying to put forth a policy right now saying you have to have all these limitations when you make code as a maker, which is going to severely hamper um, independent developers and small shops and help out large corporate conglomerates, which is just going to be really, really hard for the little guy. So that's what I see as one of the main issues. Another one is probably the AI issue. Um, how is AI going to be, you know, codified? Uh, what's going to happen there? We've seen GitHub already mass scrape copyrighted code to feed their training engines because it says there's no law against using it for training, um, which is really, really fascinating. And we know that's the case. So how are we going to end up with a, with a future where um, producers of code are properly paid for their work, which is being used to fund AI, which is also undercutting them in the market by producing you know, art and stuff. I know of websites that have been built using AI art already instead of paying designers. So 
It's not really fun stuff. I kind of sound cynical and, and barbaric right now. I think I, I come off as a real wet blanket. I'm not trying to. Uh, there's also a ton of opportunities for how we're going to move going forward, how we're going to um, talk about marketing, talk about um, helping out small projects get money. Um, but like I, I really see those as some of the major issues right now in the field. And I'm hoping that the downturn that we're entering now, the bear market, doesn't have as long claws as, you know, say the last one, you know, the dot-com or the 2008 one. So, I don't know. It's it's interesting to watch. And uh, my hope is, in particular, that open source developers in third in third countries, um, third world countries, in the global south, are able to actually use this to get a le- leg up um, and say, well, it's clear that open source and the major companies isn't working very well anymore, but we can still develop stuff and we can still use their things and we can still get going. And more people who do that, I think the better better off we are. Um, but that's kind of dreamy and so on. And that's it's a whole different topic. But yeah, those are my those are my off the cusp thoughts on the threats to open source at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. Isaac, what do you think? All right, taking a deep breath. Um, I think, <laughs> and this is, uh, I kind of le- led into this a little bit when I was talking a bit about what we're trying to do in this space. And honestly, I if you talk to anybody, it's not enough, right? I think the biggest problem is that there are too many takers and not enough givers in open source in general. And I think the uh, the thing that really I think is the most troublesome, I guess, is is the large organizations that are quote unquote like enterprise that they they build on the backs of open source and they don't they don't do any of the the tenants of open source back. They don't contribute to open source. They don't open issues. They don't open open pull requests. They don't fund. They don't do anything. Right? Like I mean. And this is not to call out a particular product by name or a pro project by name, but like how many huge companies use Kubernetes, right? And how many of those companies actually downstream contribute back to Kubernetes, right? It's, I, I think at the end of the day, like some of them do, but most of them are in big tech and big tech has obviously a reason for something like that. Like, because it incentivizes use of the product and use of their, their programs and all these sort of things. But if you work in a major bank or if you work in the pharmaceutical space or if you work in, you know, the manufacturing space and you're using tech, open source tech, more than likely you're not contributing back to it. And I think that's probably, in my opinion, the major problem with open source is there's not enough people or organizations rather that are willing to carry the freight of making sure that open source is sustainable. And I think you know, there are a lot of ways that you can contribute to open source, like, but I think the, the biggest one, at least if you can't provide the technical resources, which a lot of companies can't, and I respect that, is you definitely can provide financially. But, you know, I think Richard kind of hit it in the nail on the head. It's very, very hard to um, show how contributing to open source increases shareholder value, right? Um, but I mean, I think that's one thing that we can definitely look to do is you know, and that's kind of what we're doing with this this program that I'm running. Like, if we can get enough people talking about, like, hey, open source, like, is dependent on these contra- contribution mechanisms. You know, maybe it does put a little bit of leverage to some companies saying, hey, like, why isn't company Y doing this? Why isn't company Z doing this, right? So, I mean, it, not to guilt other companies, but to raise awareness of the fact that some companies should be doing it. Um, and if they're not doing it, like, they should be... Um, they they should have no reason not to. I guess that's the easiest way to phrase that. Yeah, and I mean, in the past, it could have been said that, but it's so hard to give 
maintainer's money. And I don't think that can be used as an excuse anymore. There are so many ways to to sponsor or contribute well, in some way, shape or form to a open source project, whether that be like uh, Richard has mentioned earlier, as a community as a whole, or if maybe you're an individual and maybe you just want to support like one of your favorite open source maintainers, you can do that as well. So, you know, I think there's so many, there's so much has happened to facilitate that. And like Open Collective, I mean, you know, what you can, I've seen companies give $500,000 a year to some projects. So, you know, there's substantial amounts of money that's being exchanged on that platform. So saying like, but we don't know how that's no, no, no. I think um, the we don't know how is, is interesting. One of the things about giving back to open source is that you don't have to. And it seems like a bug to the developers, but it's actually a feature <laughs> of the of the license, right? Yeah. That it was meant to be that way so anyone can use it. The problem is that it's a bug when it comes to like long-term dependency and you know the weight of main, maintenance on the mm -hmm. teams who then release open source code. It becomes kind of a moral bug as opposed to a licensing yeah. feature. Um, maybe that's stretching the metaphor too much, but I'm trying to think about how to, how to frame it another way. Um, another thing that came up recently around this was, um, in particular, to, to Kat Allman, who was let go from Google, who was just amazing. I heard someone mention, the thing is that she's not, it's, it's, it's impossible to judge the weight of the influence on the open source that Google's OSPO had. Be, because it's not that it's, you know, valueless, but it is to the shareholders, but that it's priceless because you just can't put a number on it. And so my hope is that more companies focus on the long-term value that they're building without trying to have to quantify it. Because when you quantify it, you end up in a huge difficulty. It's really hard to do that. But we all know who are the good and bad players in tech. Um, and we all know when some companies are just really awful and never give back. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, just loose thoughts, I guess. Um. We were talking about a whole bunch of stuff that leads really nicely into this next one, um, where I said that people have no more excuse when they say, well, I don't know how to give to open source. Richard, can you give us like a quick open collective 101 for those who maybe don't know how to give to open source and they can now learn how to do it? Well, giving to open source is super easy. Giving to open source is as simple as going on to GitHub sponsors and paying or going on to open collective and finding any collective that has to do with open source and then just paying with PayPal or a credit card or anything Stripe or ACH transfer. If you really want to send that much, just email us support at oscollective.org and we will help you deal with that. Um, you can also give often on Ko-Fi and Patreon. So that's, that's like not a problem. Um, there are other things out there like uh, dev stack or stack aid, um, which are sort of more about, <sighs> giving down to your dependencies, which is more of a question for like an OSPO or, or a small like shop that actually has tracked what they're actually using. And then you can give back to all of your dependencies down the line. And we're getting more and more of these projects over time. It's, it's really a, it's a hard problem. It's a hard problem because not everyone has accounts set up and then you have to figure out, okay, who gets what money where and how deep down the stack do you go, uh, which is always a fun thing. But giving in general to open source has almost never been easier. What's hard is receiving. And it's hard because you can receive as an individual, but it doesn't help the sustainability of your project. Because your project is not you, or it shouldn't be you. And if it is you, you have a really high bus factor, and no one wants a high bus factor, because that means there's, there's a lot of buses in the world. 
So let's try and try and not do that. Um, receiving as a community is also a bit harder. GitHub sponsors doesn't do it. Ko-Fi doesn't do it. Patreon doesn't do it. The only real thing I know of is you can set up an LLC or you can set up a, an Inc. And you can ask for money directly from people, which is tough. Or you can use Open Source Collective, which is, again, is who I work for, full disclosure. But that, that also kind of helps um, with making it easier for people to just pay you. Um, but it's kind of this, it's that weird divide between it's easy to give five bucks, but five bucks isn't worth it. And it's easy to give to a single person, but giving to a single person doesn't help the strength of the project in the long haul. So you always have to find this sweet spot. It's like, okay, who are we going to pay? How are we going to pay them? And are they working to build their communities more sustainable? And that's a tough nut to crack, um, which is why I, you know, stay in this business. If it was easy, I'd be doing something else. I think there's one additional wrinkle too that I think is interesting is like one time sponsorship versus like sponsorship scheduled sponsorships over time. Right. Like, and I can just talk about this from an AWS perspective, right? Like, you know, the idea to sponsor a project monthly instead of one time, we had to have like some back and forth conversations about it because like, do we build some dependency if we do monthly payments? Right. Like if we go down this path of giving them X amount of money every month, when that when the overall sponsorship is completed, is that going to be a negative negative effect on that particular project? Because they've kind of, you know, acquiesced to the idea of getting money every month. And, you know, and then on the other side, like you have this idea of like giving someone a lump sum, like that could be quite detrimental to a project if if those people haven't figured out effectively how to plan with that money. Right. So like, I think that's something that's very, very interesting too, is it's like, even like once you decide to sponsor a project, like the cadence at which you sponsor is also very, very challenging. Um, and I don't know the right answer. I, I think that each has their trade-offs. Um, we went through the, we went down the path of monthly because we thought that it was a bit more maintainable for the projects and full disclosure, like from like a, an advertisement perspective, like it shows up in their um, get up sponsor list consistently over time, which I think is, is part of it. Right. Um, but again, I think that the thing that's most interesting about it is like the, the sponsoring is important, but we also don't want the sponsorship to be a problem in the future. Right. And I think that's something that a lot of folks have to consider when they go down this path. You end up in the same area as philanthropic funds, which also have this problem of I want to fund this nonprofit, but I want to make sure that it's not depending upon me for funds in the future. So how do I make sure that it's program managed in a way that you end up with people doing the work that needs to get done? So I think, Isaac, you should probably go into construction because you're really good at hitting nails on heads. Just saying. Good job. (laughs) I wonder how many of um, I'm guessing it's very low. Like how many people that actually maintain open source projects um, have the necessary knowledge to know how to work with money well? 0.0005%. So few people have that knowledge. It's really hard. I wonder, is there any initiatives around that to like educate people, like give resources, guidance? I mean, not to drum my own drum again, but Open Source Collective, I mean, I'm paid through a fee from the platform, and my sole job is to help out these collectives figure out how to get more money and how to use it well. So we have resources oh, at Open Source Collective. Um, there's also other other cool resources out there, like um, Community Rules, community.rules, I think, or you could Google it, which is uh, by Nathan, I forget his last name, it's German. Um, 
coming out of Boulder about how to actually build good governance into your open source communities. Um, in terms of like fiscal hosting, there's not a lot out there and you run into the issue that I am not your lawyer. I am not your accountant, mm -hmm. right? You can help people, but it's really tough. There's open source dot guides, which is by GitHub, which is now a bit outdated, actually three or four years old, which talks about how to build open source projects. But in terms of like fiscal sponsorship, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, OSC makes it easy because we are your bank and you don't have to worry about incorporating. You could just use us as your 501c6 and you don't have to set up a articles of business. And we offer services for you that make it easier for you to do your life. Um, things like taxes. So you don't have to like worry about filing your, uh, what, 1099s. So that's really nice. But in general, there's not a lot of resources out there on how to do stuff. Um, so I would love to build more databases of how to do the soft side of open source, the squishy side, as Isaac said, because um, it's, it's tough. Two things. Early stage developers, like I mentioned, Mycelium Network, that's what it, it's for. And then open source. Um, so how can we use open source to help these early stage developers find an on-ramp into open source, but then also into a career? And then... Along with that, how do we make open source more welcoming? Take that one, Richard, and I'll follow up. That's a tough, tough question. Um, and I think the reason it's tough is that every open source project is different. I think what would be really... What I wish I had known... Well, no, I'm a white guy. It's really easy for me to do some things, like be assertive and demanding and ask for other people to put emotional labor for me for free, um, which is not great. I, I wish I had known earlier, though, that most open source projects don't have it together. They don't have a project plan, they don't have a fiscal plan, and they don't have good governance set up. And if you show up, and if you help out with PRs, and if it's a project you want to get involved in, if you start contributing plans to make those things happen, saying, hey, here's a guide, hey, here's a contributing guide, here's why we want to implement it, here's how we implement it, what do you think, what do you think, and being graceful and easy, it's a whole, like, most projects are going to be welcoming of that. And if they're not welcoming, it's not the kind of project you want to be in. Um, so I think that's something that I would say for people who want to get into open source and for projects that want to make it easier, open up first-timers only pro like tickets and issues that aren't just here's a low-hanging bug, but like, hey, we don't have a governance strategy. Or, hey, we don't have um, a Patreon. Does anyone want to help me set that up? Those sort of things would be really, really useful, as well as saying, here's a technical need that we have. Um, in terms of being more welcoming, I don't know how to do that in open source any more than I know how to do it as a person. And as a person, the way to do it is to be nice and to give your time more than you take and to treat everyone with the same amount of grace and love that you would like to be treated with. Um, which sounds really simple to say, but it's very hard to do when you're tired and annoyed and everyone is asking stuff of you. But that's also where, you know, you get the highest, highest returns is when it's harder and you manage to do it anyway. So that's what I would say to, to be more welcoming is listen to other people's stories and um, try and, you know, treat everyone with the amount of level of trust and care that you have had from the best person you know of in your life. View that person and try to be that person. So that's what I would say. Uh, it's kind of a it's kind of a cop out, but also really not, in my opinion, because it's hard. No, I love that. I like that. I like that a lot. I can give my two cents too. Like I think, um, and this kind of 
directly ties into an episode of my show, Coffee Open Source, that I had where I was talking to Scott Hanselman, who um, is pretty well known in the open source space. He's uh, in tech in general. He, he works at Microsoft in the .NET community area. And like his biggest thing is like empathy, right? Like talking about empathy, especially to anybody that's in tech. It, 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 in, anybody in general is really important. But if you can't lead with empathy, like you're going to have a problem immediately. And one of the ways that I think the best is, you know, especially for folks that are new to tech or new to open source, but they exist in tech, is like sometimes contributing with code is like is way too much challenge. And if you ask any open source maintainer, like, hey, do you want somebody to help you write docs or write tests for your project or uh, helping put together a contribution model or whatever, right? Like most maintainers will take that in a heartbeat. You know, some projects are, you know, they are, they do have things on, like they do have some semblance of governance, but I think Richard mentioned like, like most projects don't, right? And if you are in tech and you want to help contribute to open source, but you don't feel comfortable because you don't think you have the skills or the, or whatever to write code, there are so many outlets that you can do. Like I mentioned a few of them and that's the biggest thing. And that's how I got into tech. Like I was writing documentation. I started writing documentation for, for open source projects and that's how I got into open source. Um, and you know, that's gotten me to the point now where open source is part of my job. And I think that that's, you know, an excellent avenue for folks. Like I'm, enough to say that I'm not the best developer. Like I'm in a room of developers. I'm like middle or under middle, right? But I think in general, um, I bring other things to the table. Like specifically, I have a passion for open source and I think that that's really valuable to a lot of groups. So um, yeah, I mean, that's that's my little rant on the topic. And I talk about that a lot um, just because it is some, an area that's really, really interesting for me. Thanks so much for the input. I, I agree with all of that. Um, like on the MDN WebDocs project, uh, we recently spent a good amount of time putting together this thing we call the project template. And truth be told, heavily inspired by the one from the CNCF. Um, and it's gonna it's making a big, big difference to how we run the projects. Having like proper contribution guidelines, proper like roles like the people can see when you contribute there's actually a ladder that you can climb where you can be more and more recognized as a contributor um and just general governance documentation about how things are done how pull requests are handled what to expect as a as a um contributor what what is expected of you as a reviewer all that kind of stuff i think it's incredibly important to have all of that stuff in place and then Silly but useful things like proper automation and um, just good docs about the project that people are working on. So, yeah, I think this is great. And I, I do see a lot of projects missing that. So it's awesome to hear that that, that is another on-ramp for people into the open source world. Well, that is a wonderful way to end it. Some great advice for people to take home and take on and start thinking about how they can contribute all these good stuff to open source. Thanks so much, Richard and Isaac. This was wonderful. Um, we could have gone on for hours more, but we have to stop at some point. Maybe, like you said, we can do a, a rotation on, on your podcast and continue this conversation there. Um, thank you very much for joining me today and um, all of the best. Thank you so much, Kalk. That was great. 
Um, it was really good to be able to come on and meet you both and hang out and be here. It was the best. Isaac, if you just said something, I didn't hear it because you were muted again. So you may want to try again. Yeah, I was muted. Um, and thanks so much for having me, Skalk. And it was a pleasure to meet you both. And yeah, let's uh, let's continue this conversation in the future. I'd love to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep all the things open.